our role is as the teacher often cases. I mean, it is as that guide to the donor. On today's episode, I'm joined by Sophie Penny, who's the Director of Foundation Relationships for Penn State University and the founder and president of I-5 Fundraising. Sophie is a dynamic development leader with extensive experience in building strategic fundraising initiatives within higher education and nonprofit sectors. During my conversation with Sophie, we talk about the challenges facing nonprofit leaders today, and she provides an experienced view on how we should identify and work through these challenges, but also leverage her 5i method for how to fundraise effectively for your nonprofit. The conversation is packed full of insights, so let's dive in. So, Sophie, we were introduced uh, via LinkedIn, actually. And one thing that stood out to me when I was reviewing your profile and really kind of how you describe yourself is that you start with the words teach and coach. I would love to know why and why did you lead with those two? Well, you know, I actually wanted when I was growing up to be a teacher. And I used to think that teaching was all about obtaining all of this knowledge and then pouring it out to other people. But the reality is that teaching is really something different if you are doing it in ways that are in some ways, I guess we're described more modern and in ways that are the most beneficial to people. So I describe myself to people as a learning Sherpa. So that's what teaching me is that I'm leading people to learning. So, you know, if you think about a Sherpa and the the classic example that most people I think would be able to, to know about or be aware of is people trying to climb a mountain and having someone who's accompanying them in that process. And often we think about and talk about learning curves in any profession and and anytime we're in a new job or a new profession. And so that's a little bit like a mountain, of course, right? So part of what I have always seen myself doing is to help people climb the mountain of that learning curve. And the other thing that I would say is that I had written an article about why I teach when I was doing that on a a part-time basis for Penn State in an online certificate program. And I said in the tagline that that might surprise some, that answer might surprise some people. And one of the parts of the answer was that I'm a lifelong learner. And you might say, well, what's the connection to teaching? Well, the reality is when you're teaching, and particularly I would say about fundraising, you need to always be learning. And so when you're thinking about sharing knowledge with somebody, you have to think about everything from do I have the most recent knowledge about this topic? So if somebody, for example, is asking me to talk with them, as I just did recently, about stewardship and donor relationships, um, donor relationship management, do I know the most recent information about that or where it might be, or at least some of the key points to share with them? So I get the opportunity to learn as a result of that. 
In terms of coaching, um, it's interesting because I think I, I mentioned this to you in a, a previous discussion. I am the last person who would be considered to be an athlete. I love to walk and do yoga, but I'm not one who would be out, you know, running laps or uh, swimming or doing any kind of competitive um, athletics. And so, you know, one of the things that I've found, though, in knowing people who coach is that what they do is they start with people where they are and they think about what knowledge and skills they already have that apply to whatever the skill or ability is or the knowledge that they're seeking to develop. So let's imagine that you were, say, a tracker or a cross-country coach. You're looking at a runner. You're assessing you know, where might they be best able to perform given everything from, say, their body type to their their mental attitude toward running to other kinds of things that might lead to whether they're a short or a long distance runner or even a middle distance runner. So when I think about coaching in the fundraising context and I apply that same idea, I ask myself, so tell me what you know as a person about yourself tell me what experiences you've already had you've already surely had some experience with fundraising if not actually engaging in the process of asking other people or seeking gifts though many people have as volunteers and sometimes um, from their school experiences um, you've had the experience probably of being solicited so let's think about that let's think as well about other skill sets that you might bring from a different profession altogether, or maybe from a different educational background or perspective, and think about how those things apply to fundraising. And then how can we hopefully build up those skills and abilities that apply to fundraising, and then potentially add new skills, coach you about new skills that you need to know, to be the high performer that you want to be. And I love that analogy for more reasons than one. So I want to start with, you know, a few and we can kind of build on this. Um, but I've always seen that analogy of like the Sherpa or the guide as such an important visual in what we as leaders are doing as well. So it's not just teachers or coaches, mm-hmm. but the best I feel like leaders and those that are guiding teams forward are those that can and and have navigated the path before, mm-hmm. but now they're able to actually guide others through that process. And I think that relates back to what you said about teaching too, because I found that in my own work as a fundraiser and not, you know, having a, a kind of a an educational background in fundraising, but in the sense that I've learned and kind of studied humans and then tried to explain that through kind of a marketing lens, which is kind of my background, to teams to help them understand how we can engage both in a more personal way through like major gift programs, but also then in communications and marketing campaigns at nonprofits. And that process of leading someone else actually makes me stronger at that as well. And I think that's what you're echoing. The second parallel I can't help but to make is that I believe our role as fundraisers or fundraising professionals is to do the same thing that you're describing with donors. And so I'm curious how you've seen that parallel, but also what led you to be a, to teach and coach as it relates to fundraising? What was your path to 
the fundraising profession. Well, let me talk about donors. I'm I'm chuckling. You can't see me, um, but when I think about donors, I I have said to people that really our role is as the teacher. Often cases, I mean, it is as that guide to the donor that. Um, people oftentimes, and I'll, I'll use thinking about university donors because that's where I did a lot of my work in terms of working directly with individual donors. Um, you're really talking with them about what their interests are, what what they want to think about focusing on. And, and the reality is that that often then involves a lot of learning that they are maybe really scratching the surface only in understanding an institution or an organization as it is at this point in time. Let's say, for example, they're an alum of an institution. They may not have been back to the campus for 25, 30 or more years. And, and so they maybe read the magazine, but that's a small slice of the pie. And it may not even be the particular slice that they would want. Let's imagine, not a pie, but let's imagine those cheesecakes you see at a store where they have multiple different kinds of pieces in it and you can pick one. Well, maybe that donor has a particular one and the alumni magazine has never even written about that one. And so you are serving in the role of helping to guide or serving as that Sherpa to introduce that person to those aspects of the institution, or again, if you think of a nonprofit organization with which they might not be familiar. So I believe that our role is very, very much about teaching. Now you asked the second part, which I'm thinking you said was about working with staff. Now, if you're talking about coaching, just remind me what you asked. Yeah, no, for sure. So I think the the first thing is that that parallel between being a teacher and a coach to actually what our real role is as fundraising mm-hmm. professionals. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think you I think you nailed it. And I think okay, the other thing great. I would say is um, a, a colleague of mine that I worked with always said that you know you're always as a fundraiser balancing the organization's kind of priorities and needs but also then your donor's priorities. And it's kind of the seesaw effect. But if you have to lean to one, which you likely would, is that you should lean towards your donors and stay curious and engaged in their advocate and look for those bridges that may connect with your organization. And I think the mistake he expressed a lot is that most most fundraising professionals say, okay, this is the inventory or these are the needs or these are the priorities of our organization now let me go out and try to, you know, for an analogy's sake, sell size 11 shoes to anybody that will buy them. <laughs> and that, that, that posturing in a different way where you start with the donor, which requires you to be curious, and then teach them and educate them and then guide them or coach them towards that is a posture I think is more successful in fundraising. And I'm sure you've probably seen the same. I would agree wholeheartedly. And I think, you know, if you think about coaching per se, I mean, you know, where you, that might come in, you know, the, the teaching comes in and, and, and literally sharing knowledge and or engaging others in sharing knowledge with the donor about the organization or the institution or a particular program or a particular department. The coaching, I think, comes in in, again, as you said, starting with where the donor is, what they want, what they're thinking about, what their desires are, what their passions are, 
um, where you stand as an organization on their list of philanthropies that they support, because you're probably not the only one. Um, and understanding how you might work with them or coach, so to speak, them around talking about a gift that might be of a kind they never had thought about giving to your organization in the past. And that, that sort of teaching coaching role is helping the person to understand, for example, if they wanted to fund a professorship or if they want to be able to start um, a seed fund at a nonprofit organization, coaching them about how that might work, coaching them about what conversations they might need to have with a financial advisor in order to be able to make a gift happen or coaching them about the various ways in which they can make a gift. Some might think of that as teaching. Um, the coaching might come in a little more when you're really sitting down with the person and saying, let's see what you have in your sort of skill set here and thinking of skill set as more like ways in which you can give. Um, and, and coaching them to say, well, you know, if you wanted to make a gift, here's the way that you could make that happen. Again, you think back to an athlete who says, okay, I want to cross that finish line and I want to cross that finish line um, in X place. Well, what do you need to get to do? You know, what do you need to do to get from here to there? You're coaching the donor about what do you need to do to get from here to there? And I just read something recently that talked about the fact that there is more and more of that happening. There is more and more sort of philanthropic advising going on and, and that donors are in fact craving that. And my fear based on what you just said is that when you think about the fact that far too many fundraisers have a particular inventory and they're selling that inventory rather than listening to donors is that as has been the case with any other a number of other things in fundraising, we may see more and more people outside of the fundraising profession in, say, financial services or wealth management firms playing the role that we would have played in the past if only we had done a better job. And you, you're echoing so much of what we talk a lot about here at Virtuous. And I think, you know, Gabe, our CEO here, talks about this idea that generosity can be like cultivated and grown. Mm -hmm. And it shouldn't be assumed that it just is. And it is kind of a role as, a, as an organization to think about the long term of your donors and that you're continually looking to grow kind of the generosity capacity or kind of desire mm -hmm. of your audience, knowing that they're going to give to you and hopefully, you know, will continue to give, but also they're giving to tons of other organizations and having that like first and foremost mindset around my role is to help grow the generosity like ecosystem and capacity um, mm -hmm. is, is quite essential. The other thing you mentioned was this role as a fundraiser to actually focus on listening first before <laughs> asking or selling. And as you know, we, we've done a lot of research here and kind of established what we call the responsive fundraising framework. And we intentionally started that process with the idea of listening and we we kind of frame it in, in multiple different ways but one is that like how do you listen for what type of involvement they want to have with your organization or other organizations how do you uh, listen for their interest and kind of passions and you know how do they want to steward the resources they've been given and then the last one is how do you listen for intents like why are they giving and so many models of segmentation and kind of other cultivation i feel like miss 
those last, it touches on the last, the second one of interest, but it misses the intent because a donor that gives, you know, $10,000 or $100 and it mirrors another donor's involvement and interest, the why or the intent behind their gift is so different. And that should inform how your organization is engaging, engaging with that donor going forward. I couldn't agree more about the need to listen. There's a, a story that I've told probably far too often to too many people, but you know, I, and I wouldn't always be pegged as the world's best listener in certain circumstances, but I've, I've learned to do more and more of it over the years. And, and I, I like to think I listen very intensely to donors. Um, but probably the best example was someone, you know, who had had a previous relationship with another gift officer and, and I was transitioning into that person's role and, and the individual and I didn't necessarily know one another well. And, you know, that relationship reached a significant turning point when I went to visit with the donor and I spent, I'm quite sure it was far more than an hour. It may have been an hour and a half. It could have even been two. I don't recall, but it was a long time, and the vast majority of that time was me listening to that donor tell their life story. And the reality was that they weren't telling their life story just for the purpose of reminiscing. They were trying to explain to me who they were, what was fundamentally important to them, and in a sense, without necessarily saying it directly the whole time, why they did what they did as a donor and and what was really important to them that I needed to be thinking about. And that proved to be this crucial turning point in the relationship because when I got back home and I thought a lot about that, I wrote back to the donor and, and commented about some of the things that I heard in what the donor said to me. And the donor contacted me when the letter arrived um, and called on the phone and said, you get me. And that was this incredible shift in that relationship. And from then on, we had this incredible relationship. I was not the only person who had one with that donor and, and it was a donor couple ultimately. Um, but that relationship continued even after I left, the donor would call me up on occasion. Um, you know, I, I mean, not that there was, you know, any, you know, it, we hadn't gotten into a deep friendship or anything, but just would call and say, thank you for having essentially really listened. So it's amazing what can happen when you do that and you do it, you do it with intent. You mentioned the word intent. We do want to understand the donor's intent, but in order to do that, we have to listen with in the intention of understanding that person, not with the intention of thinking about what we're going to say next to sell what we want to sell to them so they'll make a gift. Yeah, no, indeed. And I think that echoes what we have been recommending through this idea of responsive fundraising is that you're listening so that you can connect back in a personal way, similar to what you you know did and express this idea of knowing you know, I was talking to another individual um, in in regards not to major gifts, but just digital fundraising and how the simplest little things like when I visit your website, if I'm on your email list, don't ask me to sign up for your email list again. You know, those simple <laughs> things just say like, I see you, I know what you've done, you know, and that's applying to, you know, a broader swath. But we can also see that, you know, heavily... Um, uh, implemented in major gift 
fundraising? Yeah I, yeah, I mean, I think it's at all levels. And, you know, I went to a session a number of years ago at a case conference where I heard some folks from a university talk about how they were re-envisioning annual giving and their approach to people. And essentially, rather than always benchmarking or only benchmarking with other universities, they decided instead, and I thought, frankly, it was really brilliant and it was working for them. They were benchmarking with the kinds of companies that people have relationships with every day. I probably don't need to name the names, but, you know, streaming companies and, you know, um, companies from which you order products that arrive at your doorstep and, and those sorts of things. And so they were comparing to those experiences. And let's face it, we know if we're engaged in any of that sort of activity, those companies do everything they can to know as much as they can about us and to, to tailor the messaging that they're sending to us, whether that messaging is in the form of a coupon or an email or something else, but they tailor it to us. So in other words, you know, I'll get these messages say, Sophie, you stream this particular program. We think you might like that one. And that says to me, Sometimes maybe in an uncomfortable kind of way, boy, they know a lot about me. <laughs> um, but, you know, I've in a sense given them permission to know that because I use the service and I stream it. I can always shut it off. Um, and, and sometimes I'll say, oh, yeah, okay, you get me. I really do want to watch that thing. But we don't necessarily do that in fundraising. I, I fully agree with you. Not at all. And I think it goes back, you know, you kind of you know, touched on the the gray area of personalization where it's like, is it creepy? Is it helpful? <laughs> and I think if it comes off in a way that's helpful and not directive, like you should do this, do this, or you should do that because you did this, or I see you and I know what you're doing and you miss something, you know, I think there's ways to posture still in a way that you're trying to be helpful. And how we've always framed it here at Virtuous is that like, you're listening so that you can connect personally. So like Sophie watched this program. I'm going to reach out to her after she watched that program because I know she just watched that program. And then I'm going to suggest next steps that make sense because I listened. And I think this idea of suggesting ways to get involved is not to take away from the ask because the ask is important and suggestions can be in the form of an ask, but this idea that you're making suggestions that make the most sense as next steps for that donor in real time. And it creates this level of like a dynamic engagement strategy rather than kind of a traditional fixed campaign approach where you might run three or four campaigns a year and you're asking people to get involved in specific different ways you know, we need to learn from the major gifts team in some ways and actually apply that scale for all donors. And that's something we're really trying to express on strategies that you can do that. Um, and I and, and this kind of service is something I want to get your thoughts on because you've spent time at the university level, but you've also spent time doing major gift work. And one of the challenges is that we see it, the obvious implications of, of this strategy in those um, like more high-touch personal relationships. But how would you suggest organizations actually begin to apply some of those things for all donors? Like how can they listen well, connect, and then suggest to not just the major donors, but to all their donors? What are some practical ways they could do that? Well, one of the most practical ways, and I, I know that it can be difficult at times, particularly these days, because they're um, they seem ubiquitous at times, but is this just idea of surveying people 
Um, but keeping it short, you know, we're not talking about a 20 question survey, though there are some that are very effective. I mean, there I have seen some extraordinarily well done survey packets where the surveys were as many as 20 questions long, but they were done in a way that was eliciting a person's input about the organization and what it's doing and connecting that person back to what the organization is doing. I, I can't remember the precise organization, but I know it was, I think, an environmental one that I received one of these surveys from. And I just remember sort of being in awe and thinking, wow, who does this and sends this out? And at first I thought, who actually fills this out? But, uh, but I'm thinking they wouldn't have done it, first of all, if they, I mean, maybe it was a first try, but I'm guessing it probably wasn't. Um, and the more I looked at the questions and read them, I thought, you know, these are just really astute questions <laughs> that are designed to both educate, but also elicit information from people. And just to go back to what you said about major gift fundraising and and, and learning about people. And you talked about suggestion. I just kind of like to sort of flip that a little bit to say that it isn't always suggestion directly, but it really is more of a question. As in when someone says something about maybe wanting to be engaged or involved, you, you might want to ask the question, well, did you know that you could do X? And that is in a sense a suggestion but it, it really opens it in a way that it, it's leaving it to the donor to say, no, I didn't, but please tell me more. And then, and essentially then it, they give you permission to make a suggestion or to ask them. There are people in the asking world who um, instruct people, and I, and I think they're not wrong about this, to essentially ask people permission, permission people's permission to ask them for a gift. And, I, and I've coached people about this where I've said to them, look, you're, you don't always have to just go from, we're talking about this project to the next meeting is an ask. It may be that we're talking about this project and in between there's a conversation where you talk a little bit more about it, ask the person, did you know, is there anything more? Is there something we're missing? And then say, could I come back to you with a proposal? And, you know, what would, what would you want to see in it? You know, is there any instruction you would give me as I'm preparing this? I mean, hopefully you've had some conversation about numbers and, and those sorts of things as well, too, about maybe what's a reasonable range. Um, not that you might not have suggested one. Um, but I think that whole idea of asking, because then if somebody says, yeah, okay, I'm willing to give you information, they're giving you permission to continue to engage with them. Absolutely. And I, I think that's a key part that differentiates when um, things get creepy or not, you know? And, and I think because... <laughs> no, you're, I, you're, no I, fully, I fully agree with you that, yeah, I yeah. mean, there's a very big difference between the, I'm watching you so I can push something at you and try to get you to buy it. <laughs> and I'm watching you because I want you to have a satisfying experience. I mean, I was just talking exactly. with somebody right before this call about... Um, a term, a consultant that I knew used to use um, called having a gratifying gifting experience. Um, and I've asked this question of people in workshops and said, how many of you have had a gratifying gifting experience? And I had this experience earlier this year. I'm in a workshop with 40 people who raised money, by the way. Not one person raised their hand. So this is a real problem 
that we're not doing something in a way, but, but, but if you ask them, have you had a gratifying experience with a streaming service? I'm betting that people in that room would have raised their hands. So what's the difference and where's the disconnect? Yeah, no. And I think too, like we, we again, go back to the, the thing I mentioned earlier and one of my prior guests said is it's like the posture of the fundraiser that because if you, if you're seeking to gain permission, you're staying curious, you're educate them, educating them on ways that they can get connect, you're coaching them or asking them along the way how they want to move forward, you're going to be able to have that gratifying experience rather than, you know, kind of, I need to get you through A and B and C and then done type experience. And I think even some of the best ex- like sales experiences that I've ever had have followed that same pattern because they they I wanted to continue at every step of the way and the person guiding me through that experience yeah so, I would the I would agree yeah I, and and you know there's a book called Belief and Confidence that Ron Schiller wrote um, Ron mm. used to be the VP of Development and Advancement at Chicago, University of Chicago and you know, and this is something I found to be true, particularly in one of the roles that I played when I was in a, a previous life at a university, um, where he talks about he talks about what it requires for donors to make a gift to an organization, and, and he talks about belief and confidence. But what he also says, which is really key, and it relates to this permission piece, is the fact that the majority of donors, and particularly the higher level that you get, um, you know, transformational gift donors, but I, I've found the true the same to be true with major gift donors, even if their gift wasn't considered to be transformational by a major institution's dollar figure, um, was that if you did things in the way you just described, people, in a sense, self-solicited that they got to the point where they, you know, you kept sort of asking permission, sharing information, asking permission, sharing information. And then eventually they wanted to do something and they would be saying to you, okay, I hear you. I'm ready. How can I help? And and we had many an experience um, in that university situation that I'm talking about where the donor would say, Okay, how can we help? Because we hear you, and this is great, and we want to be a part of this. And and so you didn't have to have so much of the angst that comes around asking that so many people feel because it wasn't this forced. Okay, I'm going to go down this lockstep path, and then okay, I did here, and I did so many moves, and then I asked you for the gift. Um, and 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 I'm not saying that. I agree with you. You got to ask, <laughs> you know, I mean, at some point you have to say, would you give us a hundred thousand dollars or 50 or whatever the number is. Um, but that ask can be so much more comfortable when someone has gotten to that point where they are saying, how can I help? And you can say, well, I- I'm glad you asked because this is what we're wondering if you might do. We've talked about these professorships or we've talked about these graduate assistantships, or we've talked about this, um, you know, this particular summer camp that we have at our nonprofit organization and what our needs are there. And I wanted to talk with you about whether you would consider a gift of X to accomplish this for that particular purpose. And I think the lesson here goes back to where we started, which is that fundraising is is much less about a transaction and more about teaching and coaching along the way 
to help people express something they desire to do already, which is, you know, express generosity. And that's really what fundraising is about. And I think today, more than ever, we have more tools and today's donor have higher expectations of what a good experience should be because of some of the other experiences they have from other brands and other experiences throughout the day. Um, and so it's so much more about that teaching and coaching. I fully agree. And and part of the reason I say that to people is um, there's an article that I've, a blog post that I've written called, She Is Not Your Donor, You Are One of Her Charities. And, and that quote is not mine. It's from Mark Phillips, who's a, a consultant out of the UK. Um, but I heard another consultant mention that phrase at a conference. And, you know, I, I kind of have taken that and I've taught people a, a around that to say, look, one of the things you forget is that people are not giving just to you typically, that there may be those few who are, but people, if you look at say Penelope Burke survey, they're giving to maybe five, 10, even as many as 20 different nonprofit organizations. So you need to teach and coach them about what makes your organization unique. And I'm not saying to suggest to get them to stop giving to somebody else, but it is as much about why should they keep giving to you? Why does it matter if you stay on the list? Because people are actually, research is proving, starting to call their lists of organizations to which they give. So why should they keep you on that list unless you give them or teach them about or coach them in reasons why keeping you on the list will help them fulfill their own personal goals for their philanthropy? I kind of want to end there. Sure. That's <laughs> so, fine. <laughs> just beca because I think like we kind of talked and summarized and talked and summarized. And I think that key point back, which is like, they're not your donor. You're one of their charities is probably the best, you know, if they get, if anyone gets anything out of this, it's like, that's it just as a reminder. Yep. Um, because I then think the other things we talked about really help give practical, um, ideas on how you would actually posture if that was true because mm -hmm. it is i agree um, and i kind of want to end on that like sure. just remember this one thing um, yep. so we'll go from there okay um, <laughs> so i i'm so thankful that you brought up the teaching coach thing because i think it, it it formulated into a much better conversation so again i came with my assumptions and then <laughs> we listened and we had a much better conversation <laughs> Well, I've really appreciated having the conversation and, and you don't know where these will go. As I just said to someone, you don't always know where a conversation with a donor will go, but you know, just, just strap yourself in and go for the journey with them. Yeah, indeed. In in our prior conversations, you've actually surfaced that need for fundraisers to cultivate a comfort with change and being able to stay nimble in those conversations. And that's key. So on that point, do, do you have practical ways that someone can learn how to be more comfortable with change? Um, well, you know, I would say that one of the things to do, and, you know, I um, learned this at a workshop from, from a woman by the name of Barbara Troutline, is to learn and understand that we all deal with change differently and to learn about how you tend to approach change yourself. Um, Barbara's actually created a tool where people can... Um, take an inventory and better understand whether they lead with their hand, their hand, their head, their hands, or their heart. Um, and it's often a combination of those things. It's it's rarely 
an equal combination of all three of those. We have a tendency to lead with one or the other, um, but then maybe have some additional styles that we can fall back on. And so learn what that means and, and learn what it means for what's a strength for you in terms of dealing with change and use it, but also learn where you may have some blind spots and maybe where you want to find some people who deal with change differently um, and help them help you to think about dealing with change. I mean, one of the workshops that she does is where she has people who are in work teams understand each other's change leadership styles and then think about how together they can use those styles to come up with a better solution than they would if they were doing it by themselves. I mean, I think there's plenty of research um, these days that talks about how diversity of perspectives of different types of people enhances organizations and organizations' ability to move forward. It may take a little longer to get to a destination, but you get to a better place. The other thing that Barbara has taught me is that when you do this around change, change is more likely to stick. So you have fewer of the problems that often come with change, which is that you say you want it, you maybe take some steps toward it, but 80 or 90% of the time it doesn't actually stick. Um, so I think that that's a really beneficial way to do it. I know I've I've applied what I've learned to that, learned from that, even to my own sort of personal professional life. When I think about dealing with change, I mean, and I've just dealt with a lot of it in changing positions. Um, so I actually stopped one day and said, well, geez, if I, I teach other people how to deal with change. I maybe ought to think about applying this to my own circumstances. So how do I need to deal with this now, knowing what I know about myself? And, and that awareness, I think, is so essential. And it kind of even goes back to what we talked about earlier, which is like, how do you actually listen to yourself and see how you're responding to that change so that you know how best to adapt and proceed forward? Um, but Sophie, I appreciate the time. Thank and, you very um, much. No, it's been great. I've really appreciated it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Responsive Fundraising Podcast by Virtuous. Each episode we've designed to really give you the insights into the philosophy, process, and playbook of leading nonprofits so that you can grow giving and build deeper relationships with the people who matter most, your donors. And if you want to dig further into responsive fundraising, we've actually put together an exclusive content pack just for listeners of this podcast. If you go to virtuouscrm.com slash podcast, that's virtuouscrm.com slash podcast, you can download a content kit that includes the responsive fundraising blueprint, which outlines all of the strategies that are involved in implementing responsive fundraising. You'll also get the Responsive Fundraising Playbook, which includes 20 plus plays, which are basically strategies that you can implement today at your nonprofit to become more responsive and ultimately raise retention and increase giving. We'll also throw in a bunch of other resources and content that is going to be helpful for you as you think about how you're applying responsive fundraising at your nonprofit. And it's completely free. You can grab that at virtuouscrm.com slash podcast. Oh,